of June. Uh, hard to believe what we're almost halfway through the year already. Uh, and yes, uh, once again, I'm I'm late. Uh, the new moon was uh, a couple nights ago. Uh, yeah, but you know, that's, uh, I'm here. I'm here now. So uh, hope you're here too. And uh, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's dark out there, folks. Uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know what else to say. It's just, uh, feels like it keeps getting darker and heavier every day. Uh, but, uh, we're, you know, moving toward the summer solstice and, uh, toward the full moon and toward more light, hopefully. Uh, and, uh, we're here now together in the violet hour and, uh, you know, just... Maybe we can make a little space for each other, a little little refuge with some beautiful words and music, and uh, I'm and that's that's what I'm here to offer you, uh, and and that I'm uh, really excited about because I have some fantastic words and music for you today. So uh, instead of my glum rambling, um, let's just get into this beautiful work. I have stories for you by Corey Ferenkoff and Gabrielle Griffiths, uh, who happen to be married to each other, I should add. They happen to be married to each other. Uh, otherwise it wouldn't really be worth mentioning. <laughs> uh, and I'm really delighted to feature both of their their work today uh plus uh the music of gabrielle griffiths who you may remember i have featured in uh both season one and season two uh and i've got more uh wonderful music by her today so uh let's let's just get into it bird watching during the end times by corey Farenkoff. This was published at Coffin Bell. 1. Purple finches once flocked to the feeder. They were supplanted by house finches, the red feathers of their face dull in comparison to their fleeing cousins. The small birds' aggressive tendencies pushed other flocks further north before they too were evicted. Tree sparrows and chickadees no longer bathed in the bath Merrill attempted to fill when he could spare the rainwater. A silence permeated everywhere, the air no longer stirred by the screes of tufted titmice and grackle. The surplus of birdseed Catherine bought before she died was dwindling, wooden crates nearly empty. The same could be said for the canned vegetables and jams Merrill stockpiled in the basement. The deer meat had dwindled to a few shreds of jerky. The canvas bags of rice were no longer plural. The bird feeder stood before Merrill's front door, 
mesh tangles of wire, and platforms to shelter the remaining visitors from the buzzards circling above. The feeders huddled under a copse of scrub pine and wild cherry, their boughs providing shade, a perch to nibble seed when temperatures rose. Merrill's house stood on a hill, overlooking a pond that had gone green from cyanobacteria. It was a split family residence, but the upper floors were boarded off. A gas explosion killed the earlier occupants when they tried to rig a propane tank to their natural gas stovetop. Merrill and Catherine managed to put the fire out before it charred their rooms below. Only a minimal amount of rainwater slurried through the wreckage of their ceiling. Merrill collected it in buckets. Waste not, want not, Catherine always said. She hadn't minded the exodus of neighbors, the crowds at the local grocer thinning every day. It was the declining variety of avian life that brought her low. It wasn't just the birds. Squirrels and chipmunks disappeared. Deer fled for greener pastures. Even the number of insects ebbed to a few species of caterpillar, which was concerning, considering robin and sparrow fledglings couldn't survive on birdseed alone. They needed the protein-rich, soft bodies of worms and grubs. Catherine had worked for the local land trust back when it was still a functioning entity. She mapped wetlands where amphibians were attempting to establish breeding populations. She hammered osprey nests onto telephone poles, manufactured bats homes to keep mosquito populations down. Towards the end, the last ecosystem she defended was the feeders in her yard, which, in her opinion, were poor substitutes for actual habitat, but necessary considering the circumstances. Her grave rest at the bottom of the hill, marked by a single blade from the lawnmower Merrill hadn't gassed up in two years. He intended on planting a tree in its place, but seedlings wilted before their first adult leaves could unfurl. In some way, he was glad she hadn't lived to see the two remaining species who frequented the feeders. Blue jays and cardinals were the last to perch atop the seed, vying for territory they once shared in peace. The feathers they plucked from one another nearly brought Merrill to tears as he watched them through a crack in the blinds. He didn't want to think what the minor violence would have done to his wife. 2. If you've got enough to feed the birds, then you've got enough for us, a woman with a shaved head said, standing outside Merrill's front door, thumbing back to the feeders. The two men accompanying her had shaved heads as well. The hairstyle helped disperse heat. One held on to what little muscle he could. The scrawnier of the two was skeletal, his left arm broken and healed at a wrong angle. There's a difference between bird seed and food that's okay for you and me. You'll expend more calories shucking the shells than you'll get from what's inside, Merrill replied, scratching his beard, looking down at the forelocks separating outside from in. If there was anyone who knew anything about calories, it was Merrill. He'd been a high school chemistry teacher before things went south. He could balance any equation the young woman couldn't wrap her head around. But it's still food, right? Sunflower seeds like the baseball players used to chew? The woman asked, scratching at a scab on her forearm nestled amongst the thousand freckles. Every tendon in her neck stood out when she spoke. Some comes from sunflowers. There's also millet and safflower, maybe some suet. You're going to make yourself sick if you eat it. Trust me, why do you think I haven't eaten it myself? The larger of the men walked over to the feeder and upended what was left from the morning's scoop. 
He stared at the kernels in his palm before tipping them back into his mouth, not bothering to pick out the bird droppings that inevitably mixed with the shells. Got any more? the scrawnier man asked, staring at Merrill through the slatted door. Merrill dragged the barrel of his rifle into the opening, letting the group know it was part of the conversation, neglecting to mention its lack of bullets. Okay, okay, we get it, the woman said. No seed. We don't need to take this any further. Gasper, give it a break and hang that back up. The larger man did as he was told, looping the metal clasp of the feeder over its perch. See you around, the scrawny man said, before they walked down the road leading to the green pond. When they were out of sight, a pair of cardinals alighted on the feeder, scrounged through the empty platform, then took wing. 3. Merrill kept the bird seed in his triple lock shed. He wanted to drag the crates of seed inside, but there was little room. Unlike he told the visitors, it wasn't worth consuming. There was also contamination to consider from the manufacturing plant. If he had to put money on it, the larger of the group would be doubled over in intestinal despair, the roughage and bird droppings too much for an already debilitated GI tract to handle. Before he fed the birds the next morning, he searched the property, making sure no one lingered in the blueberry grove that no longer bore fruit. Satisfied, he unlocked the shed and walked to the back of the confined space passing old gardening implements that no longer held any use. He dipped an aluminum can into the remaining crate of seed and filled the feeder, making sure none fell out when he carried it back to its perch. From his front window, Merrill watched the pair of cardinals return. The male selected a seed from the feeder, the best in sight, and fed it to his mate. It was a trait the species developed over the course of their evolution, the male proving he could supply food that he was reliable, selfless in giving up the choicest morsel. Cardinals were Catherine's favorite bird. A flock of blue jays wheeled out of a nearby pine, cawing at the cardinals until they abandoned their perch, diving into a nearby thicket of bittersweet ravaged oak. He'd shoot the jays if he had the cartridges. Their presence never sat well with him. They ate the eggs of other species, swallowed small rodents if given the chance. Yet they weren't quiet birds of prey not when classification still made sense. 4. The stomp of trudging feet woke Merrill from sleep. Someone had broken into the second story and was traipsing around the deceased tenant's rooms, turning over charred furniture, realizing there was nothing valuable left. Merrill picked it clean months ago. Catherine didn't like the idea of going through the possessions of the dead, but there was no sense leaving something of worth to rot. Waste not, want not, Merrill reminded her. The footsteps continued, several someones moving about the small space. There was little Merrill could do but wait to see if they tried his door. The rifle was useless as anything besides a club. Kitchen knives had dulled over years of use and abuse. He could tear a leg from the rickety table in the kitchen, hope a few nails came with it, but that was little better than the rifle stock. Merrill slipped out of bed and moved to the wooden chair by the door, rifle in hand, listening to the inarticulate dance steps filtering through the floor above. When they'd given up, it wasn't Merrill's door handle they tried next. Halfway down the hill, he heard the hinges yanked off the shed, the torsion of wood and metal scraped and bent by crowbar and hammer. They must have seen him go for the bird seed the day before. Binoculars spanned great distances. Merrill's eyesight hadn't been well since he was in his fifties, 
Camouflage was barely necessary to duck his notice. Five. The seed was gone. So were several shovels and rakes Merrill once used to tame the land he owned. The crates were torn to pieces, even though the thieves only needed to scoop out their contents. Wasting calories, Merrill thought to himself. That's how he knew they weren't long for the world. Waste not, want not, Catherine reminded him as he estimated the math in his head. Outside, up the hill from where he stood in the shed's doorway, he watched the cardinals land as they did every morning, but the feeder was empty. The two birds lowered themselves onto the platform, picking through the few empty shells that stuck to the bottom. Neither came away with anything. A lead weight dropped through Merrill's empty stomach. He knew that look of longing in the birds' shared glances, the nervous chitter escaping their beaks. He didn't know how he lasted so long without Catherine and her daily reminders of how life had once been, how the world had once made sense, genus, phylum, family. Shakespeare once said, fish turned belly up beneath an osprey's shadow. It was an act of surrender. Cowbirds are parasitic. They lay their eggs in another bird's nest so they don't have to raise their own young. Owls' ears aren't symmetrical. One's higher than the other to hear their prey better. Her words played out in Merrill's head as a blue jay descended on the male cardinal, tearing into his feathers. The rest of the flock followed, beaks plucking feathers, finding the softer spots beneath, drawing blood, dark liquid flecking the air as the harassed songs of the two species sung in untuned agony, neither wanting what was happening, but neither knowing how to avoid the next step. 6. Merrill left the front door unlocked, but the thieves didn't come in the night as he'd expected. The door was left open, his single lantern burning within, the dregs of the oil sending up a thin stream of smoke, blackening the already blackened ceiling. Merrill no longer had any desire to wait. He'd stuck around for the birds, giving help where others hadn't. Catherine, years before, had fought housing developments tearing down local forests, reducing bird habitat in great swaths. She went door-to-door getting residents to sign petitions barring the use of chemicals and herbicides that affect birds' food sources. She organized local retirees to build nesting boxes for neighboring marshes. But the land was always cut back, houses cropping up like a pox along ailing skin. The chemicals continued to flow, and there were no mating couples to fill the boxes once they were in place. Catherine had seen it coming from far off, but she would never bend until the last option had been bled from her veins. The seed theft was that last drop. The next morning, the woman found Merrill sitting on his front step, rifle leaning against the house. Only the larger of the two men was left, and he looked paler than the day before, eyes sunken. I told you the seed wasn't a good idea, he said, not unfriendly. That you did, the woman replied her voice hoarse, eyes wider than they'd been the day before. Did your other friend make it? Does it matter? None of us are going to make it, the woman said. The man cleared his throat in agreement. You could always head north like everything else. That's still an option, Merrill said, a flicker of regret crawling up his spine. He didn't want the end he had laid out now that it was upon him. Catherine's ghost hadn't fallen silent with her facts and figures, but none of the knowledge was going to bring back the birds or help Merrill get off the stoop. Nostalgia never saved anyone. Do we look like we'd make it? The woman asked, gesturing to her partner. No, not in your current state, Merrill replied. 
This was never where either of us wanted to be. You know that. You know we never wanted to be like this. You know. The woman trailed off as Merrill nodded. He knew. There was no question in his mind. And he knew how important those last remaining calories were. The meals no one wanted to have. The few remaining sources of nutrients available to anyone. Even if they could catch a blue jay, the meat would only last them a day, if that. They were better, more easily attainable sources of calories, ones they wouldn't need to pluck first. Gabrielle Griffiths with We Don't Live Here Anymore. This one was published at Fractured Lit. The Rookery by Corey Ferenkoff. The Rookery is disguised as a shed. I keep a lawnmower and a pair of hedge trimmers for the sake of camouflage stowed beneath nesting shelves. The nests are woven of straw, pet hair, and twigs pulled from local woodlands. Fifteen ravens, oil black. A single fledgling, bleach white. I only let my birds out after sundown. I don't understand the legality of the situation, nor do I want my neighbors knowing they're being watched. The white raven alone stays with me, perched by the fireplace, gazing out the window to the pinpricked night. 
We both wait for the flock's return. I train them, each flying to nearby homes, returning with a message in the form of an object. Happy? Sad? The color of the item they drop on my doorstep indicates the household's level of contentment or sorrow. Blue bottle caps, single-use forks, feathers from other birds, false teeth. I don't understand how to be happy on my own, so observing well-adjusted neighbors is my only education. My therapist suggests I haven't had the right modeling, the distance I feel in adulthood cemented during youth. While my rooks sleep, I walk the neighborhood, pausing before houses of happy people, determining what makes them happy, composing a checklist, one I can replicate in my own life. Single, divorced, still in love, widowed. There are no commonalities. Neither is there a bearing on wealth. Most have enough money to avoid leaky roofs or sagging gutters, but the largest houses rarely yield a blue jay feather or porcelain canine. Years ago, my therapist suggested bird watching. It did little to calm my mind. Instead, I decided to have the birds do the watching. Ravens, corvus in general, are the smartest avians. Humans failed to teach me how to be good at humanity. Bipedal teachers, therapists included, have fallen short. I hoped the birds would communicate what the rest couldn't, some missed detail, a puzzle piece overlooked. I doze in my chair. Only the caw of my white companion wakes me. Out the window, flames dance about the shed, pulling through the eaves. Smoke weeps from the doorway. My flock hasn't returned from their scavenging yet, so there will be no blackened skeletons to sift from the rubble. I had thought I was getting close to a breakthrough, an understanding. Now, without a home, my ravens will leave. You're only allowed two eyes, a man with a flaming broom shouts when I step onto my porch. We don't send birds to your windows, a woman calls, candles blazing in each palm. I want to tell them they are lucky they don't rely on another's flock, that they can depend on their own senses. They don't understand. I am not trying to take advantage to pull ahead in life or possess their secrets. I only want comprehension, level ground beneath my feet, the ghost sensation of happiness. I want to make them understand, but the only words I can produce are, sorry, sorry, I'm so sorry. One of the only things I've ever been comfortable with is an apology. I don't need ravens for that. The gathered crowd extinguishes their makeshift torches. They walk down the driveway as my birds circle above, cawing, having left their nightly deposits at my feet. I can't look at the objects. There's nothing to learn. The ravens fall asleep in the pines. I wonder what my therapist would say about sleeping beside them. What analysis could be applied to finding comfort in non-human companions? The bark is rough against my skin, wind cool on my neck, sap slicking palms. There are enough low-lying branches to make it to the crown. I curve my spine into a notch beside my birds, doing my best imitation of tucking my head beneath my wing, keeping the plume of ash out of my face, the shed still smoldering below. 
Gabrielle Griffiths with Animals Dream in Winter. This one is by Gabrielle Griffiths, published at New Flash Fiction Review. The eelgrass is dead. The beach erodes. An entire diner was consumed in less than 13 hours, swallowed by the maw of the ocean. Our transistor explodes like blue fireworks. Just a few feet from the kitchen door, a gunshot of electricity in the rain. We go down to the pier to watch the waves, yellow coats and rubber boots. 
The ocean rips away the shore, drags horseshoe crabs beneath the current. The eelgrass is dead. Our home is drowning. Wimbrels search for salt marsh. We look through each other at bobbing seal heads and white caps. There used to be oysters here, thick reefs. They are less than a percent. Sickly shells float beneath the surface. Pale faces reflect in the moonlight, the tide rolling over travelers. Men are bludgeoning birds and bludgeoning seals and bludgeoning whales and bludgeoning cows and bludgeoning other men. Blood stains the rocks. Blood stains the trees. A lonely egg. The moon watches. Birds screech. Rowers dip their paddles into the bay. Fishnets swell and shrink. The earth paints herself over with horsetails and ferns, lizards and whales, changing her clothes from redwoods to mastodons. We sit on the dock where land meets sea. Intentions of dead men form thunderclouds. We squeeze our wet hands together. Salt spray rolls down our faces. We're strangers and not strangers. We breathe the smell of brine. Seals swim in the harbor waiting for fishing boats. Jellyfish glow. We strip off our clothes and jump into the bay. Submerged, the entire ocean pushes against us. Sand runs through our toes. We wonder why we are together. I want to tell you I accept death, but not suffering. Numbness is a palliative. The days unfurl in soapy hands and discourse. Music floats through our heads. Crashing, foam, piano keys. Pollen accumulates on sills. Succulents grow roots to nowhere. We have a jar of rubber bands. Bottles mark the days. From above, lights below flicker into darkness. We drive down flooded streets. Headlights reflect off wet roads. The water has nowhere to go. It flows into basements. It carries bodies, light bulbs, pesticides. Car exhaust swirls into ponds, chokes frogs and fish and plants. Everything is chaos. Our head is a bleached reef. Coral reduced to nothing. Starved seahorses search for their home. We soak the car seats. Plant debris whips across our windshield. Our headlights fade into decomposing leaves. Inside, we can hear branches cracking. Wind pushes over pine and sumac, rips the power lines down. We lay in the dark with a flashlight. Blood dries to our skin. We think about the flowers we wanted to plant. Lavender, coreopsis, black-eyed Susans. Outside, the ground thaws, wet with mud. We are unaware of distant days. Blue sky, copper beach, and swollen oaks. Our minds blur like wet ink. 
incapable of taking it all in, there's a cloud in our ribcage. We feel like a trampled meadow, the connective tissue of a smashed turtle. Water rises and rises. Sadness pours through the windows. We hang on a hook waiting for our fate, fade into sheets and sleep. We thought we were trying to make each other happy. We were trying to protect each other from grief. Can't quite explain it. Um, and maybe that's a good thing that there are certain things that happen that you just can't put words to.
That was Gabrielle Griffiths with Time Won't Touch Us Now. The Herbarium by Gabrielle Griffiths. This was published at Cheap Pop. The curator knew a small storm would choke the seaside town. She collected every seed, flower, and root she could find, attempting to preserve what would soon be lost to the ocean. Some species could only be found at night, insects that fed on the leaves of trees in darkness to avoid aviary predation. It was as if certain creatures only existed at particular times, morning, afternoon, evening. The sun traveled across the sky. The curator spent more and more time under moonlight, her fingers stained with sap. Her eyes were tinted with the anatomies of other life forms. She breathed terpenes. Strange things happened in edge environments, between plains and mountains, land and water. Her herbarium contained specimens of every known plant in the region. Blue stem, honeysuckle, cinnamon fern. Volumes of dried moss sat in cabinets and drawers. Mist rolled over the moors the night the curator went missing. Her empty car illuminated the forest. A search party was formed. Flashlights scanned the water. Sun rose over juniper swamps. A heavy rain followed. Streets flooded. Buildings lost power for months. The smell of muck and wet earth hung in the air. Basements moldered. Anosmia ensued. Dresses scented with black spores hung on clothing lines. After the storm, the school year was canceled. Boats beached on jetties. The surf was littered with horseshoe crabs and whales. The search party was abandoned. Vegetation overtook deserted lots. Dust gathered in the herbarium year after year until one day a figure emerged from the forest. Moss had grown into her hair. Her brown eyes turned green. She walked through the abandoned town, past salt-worn fishing wharfs, empty gas stations, and rusted signs. Ghosts of summer baseball games cast shadows in overgrown fields. Crows gathered in the trees. Finches perched in the grass. She saw herself picking horse chestnuts with her mother before the blight. She saw the truck where she had her first kiss, a transfer van carrying her grandmother's body. She saw the past and future as mycelia wove through her gray matter. She saw herself trying to save this place, to learn from this place over and over again, until she reached the herbarium and open the doors.
Gabrielle Griffiths with Your Mind is a Stone Inside Your Body. And as I mentioned, and you may remember, uh, Gabrielle Griffiths was our featured musician in Season 1, Episode 6, Living in a Material World, uh, which was my interview with Fiverr artist and teacher Jody Colella. Uh, so you can go back to that episode to hear um, my mini-interview with Gabrielle Griffiths. Um... And her music was also in Season 2, Episode 5, Let the Earth Melt Under the Tongue, featuring Beth Gilstrap's beautiful book, Deadheading and Other Stories. And uh, and now uh, here we are again in, in Season 3. So I guess um, uh, Gabrielle Griffiths is my uh, una- unofficial uh seasonal featured musician uh anyway her music uh is absolutely beautiful and you can find more of it on her bandcamp which is gabriellegriffiths.bandcamp.com that's g-a-b-r-i-e-l-l-e-g-r-i-f-f-i-s.bandcamp.com uh so go check out more of her music and, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe she'll be back in, in season four. I have kind of arbitrary seasons anyway, about every every dozen or so episodes, I decide to call it a new season. Um, but uh, I don't know. It, what, what is a season? You tell me. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo, tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. Calm.
it's me, Mr. Bear. Oh, hey, Mr. Bear, come on in. Uh, sorry I wasn't around yesterday uh, when you stopped by. Uh, yeah, that's okay. Uh, I saw your note that said to, to come back today. Yeah, I just, um, you know, some days you just don't feel like visitors, you know? Um, even, even good friends. Sometimes you're just kind of down in the dumps and even, even when a good friend might, might lift your spirits, uh, sometimes, sometimes you just can't get up and open the door. I know, I know, uh, I can, I can relate, uh, but, uh, I'm happy to see you today, Miss Mousy. Yeah, I'm happy to see you too, Mr. Bear, um, I'm really glad you understand, um, you know, and, and that you came back, um, so, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, things, things look a little brighter in the morning too, sometimes, you know, you get a little sleep and, uh, and you see, you see things a little differently. Uh, or even if you see them the same, uh, you know, you just have a little more energy or something to deal with them. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, like, uh, well, really, I mean, your, your eyes get some rest, so you do see things differently. Um, yeah, it's like, um, having, having new eyes. Um, anyway, uh, c come on in, don't mind the mess, um. I am um, just trying to, you know, trying things out, trying to get, you know, trying to get going. So I've been, um, I've been thinking about Rose, Rosemary. Uh, do you like Rosemary, Mr. Bear? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's a tasty spice. It is, um, but it's, it's so much more than, than just a spice, um, but, uh, that's, you know, how most people, most people have it in their kitchen, um, or you can get it at the grocery store, uh, you know, where they have those little packages of fresh herbs. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a nice thing to get. Um, but, uh, I made this, um, tincture of rosemary and, uh, I like to take a squirt to kind of, um, you know, get, get things moving. Uh, yeah. T um, so how did you tincture it? Well, I just, um, put a bunch of fresh rosemary. Um, I mean, you can do dried too, uh, if you have, you know, you want it to be good quality dried, like you want it to have the aroma. Um, but I, I made it with fresh and, uh, I just put some, a bunch of rosemary in a jar and poured vodka over it and left it, uh, you know, shake it, uh, but, uh, let it macerate for a month and, uh, strain it out. And then, um, and then you have your, your rosemary tincture. And I like to, well, like I've just been taking a squirt to kind of, um, to wake, wake up, you know? Oh yeah, I could, I could use some waking up. Well, here, why don't, um, here, why don't you, you try some? Uh, I actually, I also like to sometimes put it in drinks or cocktails or right now I have it, um, in with a, a homemade, uh, violet dandelion yarrow soda and some violet syrup and it's just like lovely little tiny medicinal spritzer picker-upper. Oh, yeah, that's uh, an interesting combination of flavors. Yeah, the, the rosemary really adds some, some depth there. It's interesting. Um, but uh, I don't know if you know this, Mr. Bear, but rosemary is associated with memory. A lot of people know that. Um, 
And they say uh, having rosemary around when you study and then when you take tests that that can um, that can help with your with your remembering. Um, yeah, I've 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 heard about that. Uh, it's well, it's um, it's it's a very it can be a sharp smell. Yeah, and so kind of just you know wakes you up. Um, but that's it, also uh, it gets. It's warming and circulatory, gets the blood moving, um, especially up to the head. So it can help with some headaches, um, especially if they're kind of uh, cold, uh, cold, heavy headaches, you know, where you want to get things moving, get the warmth up there. Um, so ro- rosemary can help with that in 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 old, old times, I guess, uh, apothecaries used to sell a, a, a hangover tonic, basically, uh, rosemary was supposed to help with that. Um, but, um, I've heard about, uh, rosemary, um, being in shampoos and things. Yeah, it's, um, stimulates the scalp and is supposed to help the hair grow and, um, yeah, really help with the, the scalp health. Um, so yeah, you can get a shampoo with rosemary in it, or you can just make some rosemary tea or some rosemary infused vinegar and wash your hair with that. Um, I like to do that. And, um, uh, there's this old story that, um, a long time ago, uh, there was this, uh, old woman who was very old and paralyzed and had arthritis. And then she had this, um, elixir of youth and rosemary was, uh, the top ingredient. And she was transformed into this beautiful young girl. And the king of Poland asked her to, to marry him. And, um, you know, personally, um, I don't think I'd want to be, uh, married to a king, uh, you know, uh, well, for so many reasons, but, um, Anyway, also, you know, I don't like this idea of, you know, you have to be young to be beautiful uh, or able-bodied. Like, you can't be disabled and beautiful at the same time when, of course, you can. You know, I think you can, you know, beauty, as they say, is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I totally agree, Miss Mousy, this emphasis on, on youth and attractiveness being, uh, you know, the same thing as, uh, you know, not, uh, I, I don't, I don't buy it. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm a bear of a certain age and, uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's okay to look a little worn around the edges. Um, yeah, it's, um, you're beautiful to me, Mr. Bear. Oh, thanks, Miss Mousy. You're beautiful to me. Anyway, back to uh, the King of Poland and and uh, this woman who was transformed. But uh, it was called the uh, the Queen of Hungary water, and there's still recipes for it around now. Um, so you know you could look one up online and, and make it. But I was reading. Uh, so rosemary is one of the top ingredients, and I was also reading cedar and turpentine. Um, I was reading this in a in a in a Greek book, so maybe my translation wasn't a hundred percent. So I certainly don't think they mean you know turpentine like uh, like paint thinner. Yeah, I hope I hope not. Yeah, um, but apparently turpentine, the turpentine tree, is in the cashew family, like related to pistachios. Uh, but there's other kinds that aren't just the pistachios, and um, 
uh, at least historically, they've um, in the Mediterranean they've uh, cooked with the fruits and and made all kinds of things. Um, so so I think it's something more along those lines than you know like uh, turpentine. You know, you get at the hardware store now. So I would not um, make a Queen of Hungary water with turpentine. Um, but, you know, rosemary, uh, yeah, have get some rosemary in your life. Um, you know, it's traditionally in a lot of uh, recipes with meat, um, but it's delicious with um, rice and veggies or fish or anything or just rosemary tea. I love a rosemary Telsey tea. Oh, that, that sounds nice. Yeah, rosemary is a heart tonic, and it's antimicrobial and an expectorant. So, you know, it's it's great for um, um, when you're getting sick, you know, fighting off colds and flus, uh, some some coughs, you know, the kind where you really need to get gunk out. It can be helpful. Uh, you'll see rosemary in fire cider and thieves vinegar a lot. Um, topically can be really nice, infused in an oil or put into a liniment or a salve. It can soothe muscles or put it in the bath. Oh, a rosemary bath sounds nice. Yeah, doesn't it? Um, invigorating and relaxing at the same time. Um, yeah, and I'd like to remind your listeners, Mr. Bear, uh, that I am a two-dimensional hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism, and they should always do their own research, uh, but hopefully they'll be intrigued to, uh, find out a little more about rosemary now. Uh, yeah, I know I'm, I'm more interested, uh, I mean, I've always heard of rosemary's for remembrance, uh, I think that was Shakespeare. Uh, yeah, um, rosemary uh, was popular at weddings and funerals. Um, so I guess uh, wedding couples used to wear wreaths of rosemary or um, gilded rosemary uh, was handed out for wedding favors and funerals. Um, they would put, uh, I think this is, you know, like ancient times, um, put uh branches of uh, rosemary um, in the coffins and um, I guess sometimes the rosemary might take root and if the coffin had to be exhumed uh, for something I guess there were I read that there were times um, they found that the rosemary had grown intertwined with the corpses um, which uh, actually sounds kind of beautiful to me yeah, well, like we said, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, but I can I can see some beauty in that. And um, in the Victorian flower language, um, you know, floriography, where um, in Victorian times the the plants, flowers had different meanings, and and people would go to you know ec- extreme lengths to send bouquets, um, you know, that had very specific meanings. Uh, yeah, I've I'm all, I've always been interested in that. Yeah, it's like a secret code or a secret language. Anyway, uh, rosemary. Uh, apparently, uh, one meaning is your presence revives me. Um, so, I just yeah, I think I think that's lovely. Rosemary is is such a beautiful plant to have around. Um, can be hard to grow personally. Um. Yeah, uh, I know. There's a. I, I had a rosemary plant. I have a rosemary plant, but uh, she's not exactly alive. I know. It's um, 
it's tricky. It's very tricky. We don't live in the Mediterranean. It's a lot easier there. Um, but you know, it's it's worth trying. Get yourself a little rosemary plant and 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 see how you do. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to rescue that one downstairs, Mr. Bear. Um, I kind of, I don't, uh, I'm not feeling too hopeful about it. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, she's, she's still a reminder, you know, looking, looking at the skeleton of the plant, uh, still makes me think about rosemary. Yeah, brings, brings a lot of things to mind. Oh, and, um, rosemary, um, recently... Well, I don't know, fairly recently, um, had a name change. So for a long time, the botanical name was Rosmarinus officinalis, and Rosmarinus means dew of the sea, because rosemary often grows by by the the water when it gets the salty spray uh, off of the water on the breeze. Um, but then apparently, um, some botanists, you know, they they do more DNA testing. Uh, now, and they're finding out all kinds of things that we didn't know. Uh, so it's sort of like um, sending your DNA off to, uh, you know, Ancestor.com or D24andMe or whatever those, you know, uh, DNA testing sites are. And uh, so they have, you know, kind of a plant version. And it turns out that rosemary is not as isolated um, as they originally thought. And she's actually related to uh, a whole bunch of other plants in the uh, salvia genus, uh, which is the sage, um, the sages. So the, um, the name's been changed. Her name has been changed to uh, salvia rosmarinus. So we still have the rosmarinus, which is really pretty, the dew of the sea. Um, but the salvia, because it's like she is all this family that uh, we didn't know about. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, and and just like with people, sometimes you know humans, um, you know, find out they have family they didn't know they had, and sometimes they're happy about it, and sometimes they're not. Uh, so I guess there's you know there was um. Uh, a little bit of an, an uproar in the botanical world when this happened. So there are, there are still a lot of people who want who say Rosmarinus officinalis, and that's it. Um, but there are a lot who embrace the Salvia Rosmarinus. So um, anyway, um, we've been talking for a while, Mr. Bear. Um, you should probably go back and finish the show. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that's a good idea, Miss Mousy. Uh, but, you know, it's I could just hang out here and talk to you all day. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I could too, but uh, uh, I've got things to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can I can take a hint, Miss Mousy. Um, and uh, like you said, I should I should wrap up this show. Uh, but uh, thanks. Um, but thanks for all this uh, talk about Rosemary. Uh, this is uh definitely one to remember. Yeah, I see what you did there, Mr. Bear. Uh, okay, uh, well, I will, I'll see you next time. Um, full moon, okay? Full moon party? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see you then. Bye, Miss Mousy. Bye, Mr. Bear.
that was Gabrielle Griffiths with Fog and Smoke. Um, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for spending a little time with me and the Violet Hour. I uh, hope you enjoyed the work of Gabrielle Griffiths and Corey Farenkoff as much as I enjoyed sharing it. And you can find out more about them and find lots more of their fantastic work on their websites, GabrielleGriffiths.com. That's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-G-R-I-F-F-I-S dot com. And CoreyFarenkoff dot com. That's C-O-R-E-Y-F-A-R-R-E-N-K-O-P-F dot com. And uh, before, uh, before you go, I'll give you a parting gift uh, from the Oracle. And I've decided to uh, to go with a new oracle. Uh, you know, for so many years, the secret lives of stuffed animals had the uh, Sweet Valley High number 86, Jessica against Bruce. Can anyone win this deadly battle? No, we don't think so. And and that oracle uh, was, was really magical. Uh, but this, you know, this new one that I found uh, and, and tried to do, uh, the, uh, the number 74, the perfect girl, Robin will do anything to keep George. It just, uh, it's just not working. So, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna try, uh, the phantom toll booth as an oracle. So I'm going to flip through randomly, put my paw down on a passage and the oracle is, it's all in how you look at things. Well, I, I guess it is. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave you with, with that to interpret as you wish. It's all in how you look at things. Uh, thanks again for, for being here with me. Uh, I will be back later this month with the full moon. And, uh, until then, take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, you can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.